Hello and welcome to episode 25 of For Art's Sake and Art History Museum podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So a couple of things before we jump into today's episode. One, um, I just want to say, so last week's episode was on the um, National Museum of Women in the Arts. When I wrote and recorded the episode and when I posted it, I did not know that the co-founder, Wilhelmina Holiday, had passed away. It was announced the Monday that I posted the episode, and I only found out a couple hours after the episode was already up. Um, so I do want to acknowledge that she did pass away on March 6th at the age of 98. Um, the second thing is that um, just going through horrible personal life stuff, I had a very, very stressful week. I'm not sick. We're not sick, which is good. But um, in case you didn't hear last week's episode, I'm under quarantine for the second time because a family member got COVID for a second time somehow. Um, so, and there's just a lot going on this week because of that. Um, so I'm going to try to make this episode a little easier for just for myself. I know that I'm constantly going through stuff, but it's just life. It's just life. So we're going through it. We're going to have a good episode. Just don't expect the most from me. That's it. Um, but today's episode actually does have a connection with last week's episode. And I think I briefly mentioned that um, on social media, the National uh, Museum of Women in the Art, um, they, every March, do this thing where it's like hashtag name five women artists. Can you name five women artists? And it's kind of a challenge for us to really consider how much we know about women in art history because of course women are one of the underrepresented marginalized groups of people um, within the history of art and museums so of course because of the way that the museum is structured it makes sense for them to extend that kind of mission statement to social media and utilize the hashtag kind of culture um, and try to get people to name five women artists. So today's episode is based on that. Like it's like a foundation for the episode, but instead of five, because I don't like the number five, I'm doing six women's artists, six women artists. Um, and it's not like a challenge or anything. It's just, I don't like the number five. This is going to serve kind of like a survey. If you've ever had a survey, you know, art history class, it's going to be not super in depth. It's just going to look at the basics for the artists and one or two works by them. And these are all favorite artists of mine. It was actually kind of really hard to choose just six because there are so many awesome artists that even I'm like, should I talk about this artist? Should I talk about this artist instead? I try to have a good mix of people because I know that I focus mostly on modern to contemporary and to local museums and artists. I'm going to try to, you know, move away from that and talk about more different artists, even though, um, modern to contemporary art, postmodern art, you know, in between that is kind of my wheelhouse. But um, yeah, how about we actually get started with today's episode? And of course, you should always take the challenge. Can you name five women artists? I try each March. I think they've been doing it for at least three years now, three or four, try to name different artists each time. Um, so take that challenge. Can you name five women artists? Can you name 10 women artists? So let's start with the first artist that I'm going to talk about, and that is Nancy Holt. Um, she was born April 5th, 1936, and she's primarily known for her public sculptures and land art, which can, of course, be a combination of the two. She also has done installation work. She was married to fellow land artist Robert Smithson, who created the Spiral Jetty. And when she began her path as an artist, she worked primarily with photography, which had a major influence on how she approached large-scale sculpture later in her life particularly the concept of light and time. The use of a photograph as well as video allowed for inaccessible land art to be more accessible to the masses, which is definitely the case for one of her more well-known works. But also a lot of land artists, environmental artists, um, made ephemeral works that either were quickly destroyed or destroyed over time. So photographs allow them to still exist as a work of art, as well as allow them to exist within a museum space. Um, she's more well-known for her large-scale sculptures that exist in the Western wilderness, um, but she also did create 
time and site specific work of art all around the world, as well as that ephemeral art that I was talking about. Um, in regards to her life, um, her husband was killed in an accident as he was looking for a site for a new work, and she never remarried after that. And she was a major voice um, in uh, protests specifically where there was proposed oil drilling near the spiral jetty. Um, she had a big voice in environmentalism and used her art to express her feelings. And she also was involved with the foundation, um, which exists both her and her husband um, to similar to Felix Gonzalez Torres that I talked about previously to kind of share their work um, and share education and kind of like be the folks who own the work. Um, so throughout her life, uh, she had several solo exhibitions and collaborations with universities um, and developers for these site-specific works of art. And she passed away on February 8th, 2014 at the age of 75. Um, her most famous work of art is probably, um, oh my God, what is it called? <laughs> Let me refer back to my notes. I just opened a tab. So I could pull up a photo. Somehow I completely forgot the name of this work. Um, it's Sun Tunnels, which is one of my favorite artworks of all time. But I kind of just had one of those brain moments. Um, Sun Tunnels was acquired by the Dia Art Foundation in March 2018. It was the first land art installation to be acquired by Dia um, to be in their collection. And it's one of the 11 sites that they manage. This is 2018. 2018, by the way. And when was the Dia Art Foundation established? 1974. So, that's wild. Anyway, Sun Tunnel, um, the Sun Tunnels, I think, is a very great example of her work of art um, and her approach to it. Um, everything from the materials to the details to the location. Um, a common continuous theme within her work is the perception of space and time, which can be expressed in a variety of ways. And this can include the scale of the sculpture versus the scale of the human body, which make, would make the visitor to the site consider their own life and existence in relation to the sculpture of the earth, the land, and even the universe. And the perception of time could also be expressed by the materials used and how the environment affects them. Um, light is also a way to explore time because of light changing, natural light changing. Um, and Sun Tunnels comes across as this kind of simple minimalist work, but it goes far, far, far beyond that. Um, it's four uh, concrete tunnels that were strategically placed. They are in an X formation, and they are located in, the, in basically the middle of the Great Basin Desert in Utah, and there's a lack exact coordinates. Um, if you ever read the books, The Spiral Jetta, um, you will know that the author had trouble finding these works of art, but nowadays you probably would have little to no problem. Um, the tunnels have these holes drilled inside each one that resemble specific constellations for each one, and it's specifically placed to match the sunrise or sunset for the winter or summer solstice, and the different size of the holes um, corresponds to the distance between the stars. And let me, I didn't put it in here, but there is specific, the specific constellations that they are basically representing um, is Perseus, Columba, Draco, and Capricorn. Um, and the concrete, the, the tunnels, first of all, the tunnels, the way that you should look up photos, because that's kind of the best way to look at these if you're not visiting, but the tunnels are just, they're huge. They're not small, and you can walk in them, and the way that they correspond to the environment they're in, as well as time and light, is just absolutely breathtaking. First, they act as a refuge from the hot desert sun, um, which is interesting and kind of is like this location for you to cool down. Um, the way that the light shines through the holes or shines through the tunnels, the way that it matches up with the sun, the way they both blend in and stick out of the environment. It's all incredibly gorgeous and it makes you really appreciate the environment 
that they're in at different times of year and the way that light moves, you know, at different times of day, the way that it moves throughout the year. And also because of the industrial materials, one, it's going to last for a very long time, but it definitely makes you consider the human um, effect on the landscape and how we can possibly coexist. And like I mentioned, photographs are some of the ways to really enjoy this work of art, both because it's hard to visit um, and that it photographs are a great way to see the light, the way that light changes and the atmospherical changes with this work of art. Next up, I have Judith Leister or Judy Leister, who was a Dutch Golden Age painter who is well known for her portraits and still life. Um, so because she was during the Dutch Golden Age, she was alive from July 28th, 1609 to February 10th, 1660. Um, there isn't necessarily a lot known about her. A lot of it is unknowns or inconsistencies or guesses because, frankly, she is a woman in our history at a time where, yes, women were regarded as contemporaries, um, and but they did face similar struggles to now of not being taken seriously, but also, you know, having their art contributed to, like, their husbands, um, that kind of stuff. So the information that we have about her isn't necessarily... 100% factual. It's not lies, but some of the stuff we just frankly do not know. For example, um, we know that she was one of eight children and that her father did work as a cloth maker and a local brewer, but it isn't exactly known as to why she pursued this career in painting as an artist. Um, it may have been to help the family out. They just, we don't know. And they're not necessarily sure, sure who taught her painting. There are different artists around the time that she may have had contact with. Um, what we do know is that her first known work, the work that we know is her earliest work, was signed or dated in 1629. And that she did exist on the records of the Harlem Guild of St. Luke as being a member in 1633. Um, there is not a lot of information known about if there were other fellow women artists um you know the exact same kind of issue um artists that were working in what is maybe considered um not art <laughs> it, like uh embroidery or working with wood or metal um they were not necessarily always considered um as eligible for a guild um or they were part of different guilds there's just it's just the context of the time, I guess, and because of art history. Um, and they're not necessarily sure what artwork got her into the guild in the first place, but it could have been her self-portrait, which is probably her most well-known work, one of them, where I'll talk about in just a moment. Um, she did at some point have three male apprentices underneath her. And we know this because she had sued another Dutch painter, Franz Halls, um, who also did portraiture, um, because he took in one of her students who left her workshop without obtaining the permission of the guild that they both were in. Um, and there's just like some drama with that and paying people, blah, blah, blah. Um, so she died at the age of 50, um, and she moved to different parts of, um, the Netherlands with her husband, who was also an artist. Um, basically her artwork for a very long time, even though, again, she was a contemporary and considered a contemporary, a lot of her art, would, art was either contributed to her husband, who was known as an artist and had commissions, or to the guy that she sued, who was another well-known artist, Franz Halls. Franz Halls. <laughs> um, it wasn't until the, 18, the late 1800s that art historians were like, oh, hey, maybe this is somebody else and she should be considered an artist. Sorry, my cat is trying to get out of my sandwich. Get out of there. <laughs> is everybody just going to interrupt the podcast today? 
well, you're a sexist. Let me talk about Judy. Okay, so let's start with one of her well-known works and one of my favorites, which is her self-portrait, which is dated 1630. Um, it is a very bold self-portrait, um, and it's kind of funny. So it's her sitting and facing the viewer, and she's looking out at us, and she's wearing very formal wear that was very fashionable and considered formal at that time. And she has her elbow on her chair. She has a paint palette on her lap in her hand, a paintbrush in her hand, and then she is painting a work of this man with a violin, and we actually see that person in another one of her works called The Happy Couple. Um, this is a really interesting thing because the way that she is sitting and the way she's looking out of us is not typically how a woman artist would portray themselves. Um, I think she just, she has this like little smirk, and the way that she's looking out at us and the way that she's sitting just has this casual tone to it. And I think it's a little cheeky. But she's painting in clothes that she would not paint in otherwise. Um, she's painting in very, very formal clothes that you don't want to get oil paints on. Very expensive. Um, so it makes us wonder. I think I talked about with presidential portraits. And I think it, this is when I asked questions to the audience. If you were to sit down and get a portrait, how would you portray yourself? And artists kind of go through the same thing why are you portraying yourself in this way and so it's just really interesting to think about like the context of the time and what she's wearing because we might you know look at this as well that's just what everybody wore and it's not necessarily that's very very formal wear another one of her works of art um let's talk about the proposition because i think that is a work that fits really well into the contemporary times and it's really great to talk about there's a lot of feminist um, interpretation behind the work this was painted in 1631 and it's basically of a woman who is doing like embroidery and there's a man and she's doing it by candlelight and there's a man next to her that's like bothering her um he's leaning over her from behind she's he's touching her he has like his hand on her shoulder and he has coins in his other hand so he's offering her something and by the title and if you're a woman or a femme person like a marginalized person you kind of know the vibe that's going on in this painting you probably have been there before something similar so you know this isn't an innocent thing like hey can i commission you for an embroidered i don't know pillow you know it's something else and here the way that she paints the woman she you know is fully dressed the only skin we see is the skin on her face and her hands. And she has this really long dress. She has shoes barely poking out. And she has this shirt that goes all the way up to her neck. And there's no shape to her body. Though we can see like her knees and that she's sitting. The way that the shadows are done by candlelight. The way that the fabric is. There's barely anything to her body. Nothing to suggest anything. And my interpretation of this is that. I don't know if she was considering this well, but she's clearly very, like, pious. She's, you know, doing what she's supposed to do. And as a contemporary feminist perspective, I see that as it doesn't matter if you're perfect or you're not. Men are still going to bother you. So I love this painting. Also, it's just really beautiful. And it also shows technology because of the way that the candle light is. Um, just beautiful candlelight, but, like, just the little way that the candle is held is really interesting. All right, for a third artist, I'm talking about somebody who has had a very interesting and complicated life, and that is the artist Edmonia Lewis, also known as Wildfire. Um, she was born July 4th, 1844, and we're not sure if that was her actual birthday, um, because a lot of people who didn't know their birthdays did put their birthday as July 4th. Um, but it makes sense for her to be around that age. She was um, both black and native, and she was born free in upstate New York. Um, she did schooling in New York and Boston and Ohio, and then she lived mo most of her career as an artist in Rome, Italy. Um, she was just an interesting person. She constantly gave these, like, facts about her life, presenting herself as different types of people, sometimes being more native than she po possibly was. 
um, not knowing stuff. It's just these really inconsistent facts that I'm not sure why, um, but it makes it talking about her life a little bit more complicated, like difficult. Um, but what we do know is that um, it's unknown who exactly her father was, but it could have been one of two people. Um, one man, Samuel Lewis, who worked as a valet, or it was uh, a writer of Black history, Robert Benjamin Lewis. She had a half-brother named Samuel who um, spent time with her in New York before moving to Montana and then San Francisco. Um, and he often took care of her and helped pay for her schooling. Um, she lived with her aunts for quite a while in Niagara Falls. Um, they were native and that's when she lived with the name Wildfire. And she did some um, textile work um, and basket weaving, which they did to earn a living. But I think also that that may have um, influenced her want to become an artist. But that's just a personal opinion. So when she was young, she was sent to a Baptist abolitionist school. That's when she met a lot of activists as well as um, artists, and it helped develop her career path towards being an artist. Um, after attending that school, she went to Ohio, where she attended a preparatory school, and that led her to going to the Oberlin Collegiate Institute. Um, and she had some difficulty there. People were not kind to her. There was an incident in which she was hanging out with two other women from the school and she gave them some wine and they became very, very sick. Um, but it wasn't until later that this incident kind of blew up where she was walking in the town in which her college existed. And even though she, you know, she faced problems at the school from prejudice, but it came, became worse. It went in the actual town and she was attacked. And after being attacked, then she was arrested and accused of poisoning two friends. Thankfully, um, there, there was an, a lawyer who was alumni from that college who, you know, said, hey, you did not get the stomach contents from those victims. So there's no evidence of poisoning. So she was, you know, um, allowed to be free. There was no charges. But she was still, like, I think her treatment became worse. She was accused of stealing. Um, they made it so that she couldn't sign up for classes, anything like that. She moved to Boston shortly after that, and that's when she really started sculpting. She had this weird story where she was like, oh, I saw a statue of Benjamin Franklin, and I didn't know what to call it, so I said Stone Man, which is, but she went to school and did study art. So, like, those kind of things. It's, like, a little bizarre. But maybe she was just trying to make her life scene a little bit more interesting. Who knows? Um, she had um, made friendships and with uh, abolitionists in Boston um, who introduced her to the area, who helped her get jobs. Um, she started to make these busts, these portraits of abolitionists and Civil War heroes. And one of those was Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. Um, and the family was really, really, like, moved by her work and commissioned more of them. She made about 100 uh, reproductions of this bust. She sold 100 of them at $15 a piece. And she was able to use this money, as well as other commissions, to move to Rome, Italy. So she was regarded as very successful artist and contemporary during her time. She was well known for having these neoclassical portrait busts of abolitionists and civil war heroes who fought for the abolitionist cause. Um, but also black and native people who weren't necessarily afforded, you know, the right, if you will, to be considered for a neoclassical style if that makes any sense. Um, that was just her approach. Um, this wasn't necessarily time to do anything abstract. This was the style of the time. And her subject matter, who she chose to put in these portraits, is pretty important. Um, one of her more well-known works, however, is The Death of Cleopatra, which was created in 1876. Um, a really interesting thing around this statue in particular 
that leads us to a debate on interpretation, context of the time versus now. There were people who wanted to see a lot of stuff in her work of art then and now. Um, and we don't necessarily know if all of her work had the same interpretation. Obviously, she was creating works of art of like abolitionists and for the abolitionist cause. Um, but a lot of people were looking at this interpretation of Cleopatra from these different lenses. And unfortunately, because of the people who could learn about art, enjoy art, as well as collect art, were in these privileged upper classes, their kind of perspective gets super skewed. Next up, we have Christy Belcourt, who is a Meti artist, um, as well as an author, and she works primarily out of Canada. Um, she's really well known for her gorgeous beadwork paintings, which are these acrylic paintings that I don't want to say mimic. I don't think that's mimic or resemble is the right word, but they show these like floral patterns that have the detailing rem and that are you know, they look like beadwork. They have the details like beadwork and they're reminiscent of beadwork. And they're these incredibly elaborate paintings that are just absolutely gorgeous. They are so beautiful. But she also creates large scale works. Um, and these paintings focus on um, primarily culture, which makes sense you know, through the, the acrylic beadwork paintings um, and community and identity. And a lot of the information that I'm getting about her is from her own kind of um, biography, her website, um, which you can check out at christybelcourt.com, which is C-H-R-I-S-T-I-B-E-L-C-O-U-R-T.com. Having, you know, as a contemporary artist, having a website is very very good. Okay, so I'm going to have my fiance help me try and, um, please don't laugh at me, try and help me pronounce some of the work here. Um, so I'm going to be trying my best to pronounce this. Um, so the first work I'm going to be talking about is a 22 inch by 28 inch acrylic on canvas. Um, we can say the, the second title, which is Reviving Everything can you say, help me pronounce the A word? Anishinaabe. Did I say that? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a different title in the full different language, which is pronounced. Abakawad. Abakawad. Anishinaabuin. Anishinaabuin. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think we did well. So I'm going to read what, thank you. And this was created in 2015, if I didn't say that. Just keep that page up. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read what the artist has described this work as. Um, first, we have two figures sitting here in this um, kind of abstract, not landscape, but scene, if you will, where there's not necessarily a floor, but they are outlined in this red and they are sitting. They have a bowl of strawberries in front of them. And in the bowl of strawberries, there are these different butterflies flying out. And then around them are different abstract flowers. And in the background, we have this pattern. Um, I think one person, person with the braid is holding a bowl of food and the person um, without the braid in like a purple dress, I think, is holding a pipe. So I'm going to read it now. The intergenerational effects of residential schools is something so many of us live with, but this is a painting about hope and revival. The bowl represents the bowl of our individual lives. It's our spiritual bowl. We fill it with the good things we do in our life. The strawberries represent the coming age of coming of age ceremonies such as the strawberries fast young such as the strawberry fast young women go on the young women woman holding the pipe and the young man holding the smudge bowl along with the strawberries represent the return of our ceremonies and the revival of everything we once had the richness of our ways of life our languages and connection to the land the butterflies represent the metamorphosis change and freedom from the heaviness of residential schools and hope for the future the flowers and plants always bring us back to our connection to the land and the medicines and teachings they give us tell us how to live on mother earth so it's really great to have the artist's explain more of her interpretation 
not interpretation, her intention, um, which would be really helpful in a museum setting or a gallery setting. Um, because looking at this work of art, we don't necessarily maybe have all those details, but there certainly is the clear symbol of growth and change from the butterflies to fruit. And both of them holding this item both have like a steam or smoke coming from it. So there's definitely some symbols there that we can definitely understand as a, on a universal level. But on a personal level, we may not have, because of our different experiences and lives, would not have known that this is about healing from residential schools. So looking at one of her more well-known beadwork paintings called The Conversation 2002, um, I'm going to kind of dive into what this painting means and the choices and not just the aesthetics, but the actual approach to creation. So clearly we can tell that she's drawing inspiration from beadwork, in particular floral beadwork, because florals um, these abstracted flowers and plants from the beadwork that usually women would be wearing and also creating. Um, she specifically makes these floral patterns um, using these dots, which represent the beads. And she does so by using the end of a paintbrush or a knitting needle and pressing that into the canvas. This work in particular, The Conversation, is dedicated to a friend of hers who had passed away. Um, she said of her friend, Yvonne was the kind of woman who, when you were in her presence, you felt instantly at ease. She had a way of bringing out the best in you. Everyone who knew her would enjoy the most wonderful, interesting conversations with her during the visits that would last for hours and hours. And I think that she represents her friend in that. We have a red flower in the very center that then branches out with these kind of white vines, as well as these white vines pretty much have the same kind of pattern and they go to these different almost like bouquets, if you will, of different flowers. And then there are also green vines, which are different on the bottom and on the top. And they just branch out, all the flowers branch out, and the painting is filled with this floral viney design. And I think by the way that she described her friend in like the conversation that they would have and how time with her could last for a very long time, but you would feel so comfortable. I think that we really see that within this painting the conversation is represented by the growth of the plants throughout and even though you know throughout time like these still lifes of flowers often were representative of like death decay poverty and very kind of negative things so of course death can have different looks to it or outlooks i think that these flowers in the color and the shape, they are very comforting and warm. And I think that perhaps she used specific flower shapes and plants to represent certain things, um, which I know has been in other works of art, like she has used sweetgrass in particular because sweetgrass has been used um, in like medicinal and like edible recipes um and it's just like this really like i have not been able to see her work up close but i know that i would stand there and stare for quite a while because the detail and i don't know if, i would not say this is pointillism because it's just not um it exists as its own thing but if you've ever seen a pointillism work you kind of stand there and stare and before i learned about her work having only seen it, I really did think that this was beaded work and it was textiles. And I think that it's really interesting that it is this painted pattern, but at the same time, one consider, could consider it, because of the technique, a sort of textile, even if it doesn't use textiles, except for the needle. Um, and it's just, just really beautiful. I really like to look through her work because it's just 
One of my favorite things that sometimes appears in work, uh, especially ones that isn't just floral, there's like animals like hummingbirds, but she does use an example um, on her website and like the header image, but she can like paint like fireflies and it does make it look like they're glowing, like as if she put lights through that canvas and it just has like this little halo effect. And when you really look and what's so great about abstract art is really it's just color and shape broken down just a little bit. And that's really what painting is in general, just built up color and shape. But it's really incredible just to look like, wow, you can create this thing that feels a certain way and looks a certain way. And it's just paint. And I love it so much. Um, so Christy Belcourt, um, besides doing these works of art that especially um, she's very well known for those needle, not needlepoint, what am I? beadwork painting what is wrong with me she has done multiple things in her art career um as well as um activism that's that may be outside of art but um one of the things she does is called walking with our sister which is uh a crowdsource art installation that is was created to remember the murdered and missing women, indigenous women in particular, of course, within the United States and Canada. This was a project that began in June of 2012. Um, she used social media to invite multiple people, like lots and lots of people, to create moccasin tops um, in memory of these women. And by uh, about a year later, July 25th, 2013, she had 1,600 of these moccasin tops mailed to her um, and she had only asked for 600 and overall 1725 pairs were donated um, this came from 331 artists from the united states um, nine from different countries outside of north america and 1385 from canada um, then the second part of this project which was like an expansion in 2014, um, included 108 pairs of children's moccasin um, tops for children who died or went missing, but specifically while attending residential schools. This is a very powerful installation work and there's this very specific way that it has to be installed. Um, so basically, the installation space becomes its own sacred space. Um, so when you visit this, you are not supposed to use cameras. You're not supposed to be on your phone. You're supposed to be very respectful. Um, you're asked to remove shoes and the gallery or museum or university or whomever is hosting this installation has to smudge, um, be, or sorry, smudge the visitors before entering this space. Um, each visitor is offered a tobacco tie, which has to be held in the left hand because that is closest to the heart before they enter the exhibit area. Um, the installation includes red cloth, red being representative of the violence that indigenous women face, which leads to murder and being missing. Then you have to walk through clockwise. Um, you're asked to stay on this red cloth to not disturb the moccasins that are on the floor. At the end of your visitation, you're supposed to return the tobacco tie, and then those ties are burned in a sacred fire. Um, and each installation space is supposed to have elders and volunteers to answer questions or um, to hear any comments, concerns after the visit. I'm presuming there's people inside as well as outside of the exhibit space. This has um, been an installation um, throughout the United States and Canada from 2013 to 2016. And I would like to see how they would approach um, COVID, like COVID times, how an installation like this would be able to work post-COVID. Um, some other things she's been involved with, um, the Oneman Collective um, which is a project that is to help preserve um, traditional language and teachings. Um, 
she's been very vocal about um, the Medi land as well as language restoration. She's been involved with the Blue Dot Movement, which is a visual protest that protests um, various government um, policy and decision making um, around how they control the First Nations in Canada. Um, they add blue dots to photographs typically taken by government organizations. Um, and these blue dots are to identify the marginalized people left out of the decision-making by the Canadian government. Um, she's been very vocal about be while well, being against mining companies and oil companies and nuclear waste companies. This included being removed from the Medi nation of Ontario's, um, registry because the organization had signed some deals with mining companies that she disagreed with. Next up, I'm talking about Maya Lin. Maya Lin is an architect and sculptor. Um, she's very well known for her winning the national design competition for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. At the time of her winning that, um, she was an undergraduate at Yale University, um, and there was some controversy around her winning that and her design, though her design is um, fantastic. Um, yeah, she's one of, so she, I think it's safe to say that she's also an environmental artist. The other work that I've seen by her, um, of course, she's done work corresponding to the site-specific like commissions she's done but I definitely personally think of her and I think it, again it's safe to say as an environmental artist almost similar to Nancy Holt but more installation work and I'll talk about that in a second <laughs> so let's talk about the biggest thing that she's known for so in the the early 1980s 1981 the there was a proposed building of the of a memorial to honor the Vietnam veterans that would be located on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. There was 1,422 submissions, um, and she was the chosen one. She was only 21 at the time. This, um, if you look at the winning submission, which is, you know, just a drawing and a plan and an explanation of it, um, actually reminds me of UFOs. But basically, it is a black granite wall, and it has the 57 plus thousand fallen soldiers from the Vietnam War, um, which were then carved into the granite. Um, the, at the time, it was specifically 57,939 um, for the proposal. And of course, more have been added since. It would be V-shaped. The proposal said it would be V-shaped. Um, and one side of it would point towards the Lincoln Memorial and the other side towards Washington Monument. The memorial was completed in October 1982, and when the dedication was the following month. Her intention um, that she explained was to create a wound in the earth um, or an opening that would symbolize the pain that was caused by that war. She said, I imagine taking a knife and cutting to the earth, opening it up, and with the passage of time, the initial violence and pain would heal. It was super, super controversial for a variety of reasons including racism she's chinese but a lot of people were like oh she's vietnamese a vietnamese person shouldn't design the vietnam war memorial and she wasn't even raised ethnically chinese which is another thing um her age being only 21 and being an undergraduate so she wasn't a professional um and i think also gender comes into that because i don't think they would be as upset if it was a young man and then finally the abstract design which if you know anything about washington dc designed but especially within the national mall the vietnam war memorial really stands out it is not your typical memorial and it also does not match the overall aesthetic of the national mall which is mostly neoclassical architecture with also a lot of brutalism throughout throughout the surrounding area but the memorials follow more traditional design. This was highly abstract and really stood out. Um, there were people upset about the memorial having the names of 
the people lost during the war. They were upset about how dark it was, um, that it would have a negative connotation. Um, there were a lot of people who were upset. And to appeal to those people who were upset in order to keep it built, they there was a different um, memorial built nearby called the Three Soldiers, which is a pretty typical statue. It's bronze, um, a group of soldiers, American flag, very typical matches. Um, but once it was built and people visited the memorial, attitudes towards it drastically changed and it became the perfect memorial for this war. Um, it's a pilgrimage for a lot of people who fought in that war or know or have family members. It's a very emotional place to be. Um, the way that it is in the land, the way that it rises and falls, um, definitely makes you think about his existence in the land, about healing. It, it reminds me of trenches, um, the land after World War One those trenches you can still see and the rise and fall of the the ground that has been destroyed and will never be the same but there's some healing with it um and then the the granite is reflective which um gives like this kind of like you can see yourself type thing and it has this like humanity to it um i didn't know anything about the memorial before the first time i ever saw it having grown up nearby um, when I learned actually the history of it, I was stunned and the purpose behind the memorial because I had been post Vietnam War Memorial. So I never heard that criticism. Um, I was born like 12 years after. So it was something that was already accepted. And, uh, now, so it's just like this beautiful place. Um, she definitely feels that um, because of the racism and sexism that she experienced once they found out who she was as an artist, that if it wasn't a blind competition, she don't, she does not think she would have won. Uh, Ross Perot called her an egg roll. There's that. Um, she has made other um, sculptures, site-specific installation, uh, or sculptures, um, one being at Yale University, which is called the Women's Table, which is kind of like this concrete ta table fountain that's pretty reflective, which is um, to commemorate the role of women at her university. She also made um, one at the Civil Rights Memorial, which is similar in style to the fountain using um, this large space that kind of interrupts your walkway that kind of makes you look. Um, this is located outside of the Civil Rights Memorial or Civil Rights Museum, if I'm not mistaken, which I really wanted to visit, but I didn't have the time when I was in the South. And next time I'm gonna visit. But what I think that she might not be as known for, because of course, creating one of the most famous memorials of all time that is located on the National Mall kind of eclipses everything. I think that's understandable, but she has created these really interesting, thought-provoking environmental installation works. And one of them, I actually got to saw see at the um, Renwick when they have like this amazing exhibit. It was like um, after they reopened, and it, it was just really stunning. And when I found out that she was Maya Lin, that this was her work, I was like, oh my gosh! So this giant work is called. Folding the Chesapeake, um, and it is an installation work consisting of 54,000 marbles used to model the Chesapeake Bay. Um, she used satellite images from NASA to be able to create this, like, bird's eye kind of map view of the Chesapeake Bay, and it existed all along the floor, but it would creep up along the walls. And it was an exact, um, I don't know the correct words, but it was exactly what the Chesapeake is Bay is uh, shaped like. And you walk in and it's like, you know, kind of like a typical gallery. You have the wood floors, the white, well, these are like off-white walls. And you have the light kind of coming through the safe curtains. 
and you have these green marbles and it's just they go all around the wall and it's just like you're like what it is this really beautiful thought provoking <laughs> exhibit that like i have i will always remember um i think about it constantly actually the way that the light is like the marbles catch the light is just really really stunning but I think this is a great example of environmental work because it makes you consider the Chesapeake Bay in a different way. It makes you really look at the Chesapeake Bay and puts the Chesapeake Bay, the entire Chesapeake Bay, in this room around you. But it's not just a map or a photograph. It is something that has texture and that stretches and creeps along. There is this life to it. And she's doing that because the Chesapeake Bay is always <laughs> in environmental trouble. If you know anything, if you're in the DMV area, you know all about it. The Chesapeake Conservancy, which is located in Annapolis, was really, really excited about it because it the way that it celebrates and brings um, attention to the Chesapeake Bay. And the final work I'm going to talk about is her last memorial, which is an environmental work. So this is considered, well, she considers it the last of her memorial pieces in her series of, I guess, memorials. Um, and it is a memorial that is very, you know, atypical. That's not typical, right? That's the opposite of typical, whatever. Um, basically, it takes part, takes place across different platforms. So with her project, let's start with the website. It's an interactive website that has these kind of, my, my internet can't handle it, but it's basically a map of the world and has these different click clickable things. And um, it tells you about these kind of climate disasters um, that, and it's still like um, happening. It, it's contemporary events. Like for example, heavy pollution in Egypt's largest wetland 2021. Um, because I just clicked on a random one and I guess it's in Egypt. So there's like these different types of sparkly dots and swirls. Um, there's timeline, video, stories, cons conservation, disasters, a um, lot of information that you can kind of click through. Um, again, I don't have the best internet for it. And finally, I am ending with Howardina Pendel. Um, she was born April 4th, 1943, and she is well known for her paintings and her, um, her kind of films or short films that are considered like video drawings, um, collages. She's a multimedia artist, so there is a lot to talk about when it comes to her artwork. Um, but let's talk about her biography first. She was born in Pennsylvania, and she went to the Philadelphia High School for Girls, um, she was taking art classes during this time, and she went to the Philadelphia College of Art um, and the Tyler School of Art. She received her Bachelor's of Fine Arts from Boston University in 1965, and then her Master's from Yale University in 1967. But she also holds honorary doctorates from the Massachusetts College of Art and the New School for Design. Um, I'm getting a lot of information from her website, trying to um, compile the information or shorten the information, I guess. I forget the word. Um, HowardinaPendel.org, which is H-O-W-A-R-D-E-N-A-P-I-N-D-E-L-L.org. Okay. <laughs> so she had actually started working in the education department of MoMA um, before she really started to follow her own career path, which I think is really interesting because we don't have a lot of artists that worked in museums. Oh my gosh. So there are some artists I want to talk Whatever. Anyway. Um, she worked at MoMA for 12 years until 1979. She worked as a curatorial assistant and associate curator. She co-founded the AIR Gallery, which was specifically a gallery for women artists within the United States and was the first one of its kind. There were other co-founders, which included um, Barbara Zucker, Judith Bernstein, Louis Kramer. There's a lot of like artists at the time. Um, the, oh, A-I-R, AIR, stands for Artists in Residence. Um, she worked as a guest speaker 
for a long time. Some of her notable seminars include Black Artists USA and the Current American and Black American Art, a Historical Survey. Um, but let's talk about her artistic style because she is a multimedia artist, so she does a quite a lot of different stuff. So I'm going to focus on a couple of things. Um, but she does everything from abstract painting to collage to these kind of films or videos. Starting with one of her most well-known works, which I think was just at the Baltimore Museum of Art, um, which is interesting, but the museum was mostly closed during time, but it's called Free White and 21, which was created in 1980. And it's one of the short films or videos that I mentioned. It's a 12 minute one where she appears as this character where she has like quote unquote white face she puts makeup on and she puts a blonde wig on she's wearing like these retro sunglasses and she talks about her very like horrible violent experiences of racism um as this character as this white woman where it's like there's a black narrator and she plays this white woman who's trying to like disagree and gaslight the her um, she talks about things just in case you try to watch. Um, one of the things is being tied to a cot by a teacher, um, when she was in kindergarten and then also discrimination, um, trying to find jobs. Um, so I would say there is some content warning with this video and you can see either it in full or parts of it, um, on YouTube. I'm pretty sure you can't see it in full. But you can definitely see parts of it. One of her most recent works was a video that she created, the first in 25 years. I believe this um, came out in 2020, actually. Um, so it's very fitting, late 2020. Um, it's called Rope, Fire, and Water. And it. Um, was commissioned by the gallery The Shed, um, which had been closed because of COVID and then reopened in October. Um, this again was one of her, it was her first video in 25 years. And it's something that she has um, been wanting to make for quite a while. And she uses data from violent attacks on black Americans throughout history um, from basically starting with slavery to police violence again came out at a very um, apt time she uses historical photographs and statistics which are contrasted against a black background with white text um, it says the video says mostly like a black screen um, and there's a metronome that goes on throughout the entire video um, and the use of that is supposed to be like a clock ticking um an interesting thing to note is that in this exhibit space there's only 25 percent capacity at the time of the exhibit um they walk past her paintings and then they go on to the video and there are some objects within the exhibit space that relate to the um, video that she's showing and um, I don't think it's available anywhere online um, but if it is I would say content warning for racial violence. Another recent work that also um, premiered at this exhibit at the shed it's called Four Little Girls and it was created in 2020. Um, it is a multimedia work there is a large black cloth it says September 15th, 1963, bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, Birmingham, Alabama. Um, on the left-hand side is a list of states. Um, and it says Black Churches Burned from 1956 to 2015, which, by the way, my dad was born in 1956. So just, he's in his 60s, he's alive and well. Like, this is recent. As Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Virginia, Oklahoma, Mississippi, South Carolina, North Carolina, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Oregon, Massachusetts and Missouri, with Alabama having the most, with nine. On the right-hand side, it says white massacres of black communities, starting with 1873 all the way to 1923. Um, 
we have 1873 Colfax, Louisiana, 150 dead bodies thrown into the Red River. 1898 Wilmington, North Carolina, 300 dead. 1906 Atlanta, Georgia, 100 dead. 1919 Elaine, Arkansas, 200 dead, including children. 1921 Black Wall Street, Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma. 300 dead mass graves, 1923, Rosewood, Florida, 150 dead. And in the middle, um, in the very center, is the four photographs of the four little girls who died in this church bombing. Um, And they were surrounded by black flowers, black roses, um, and has their names and their ages very small around them. And in the middle, on the bottom, it says four little girls killed in very, very large text. It's the largest text on the entire thing. Underneath this black panel on the ground is like a bunch of toys mostly. It looks like toys, maybe some clothing. But if you look at some of the details, there's this eerie damage, um, like a burned school bus toy, burn damage to stuffed animals and clothing, damaged shoes, um, looks like a burned basket. So, obviously, um, you know, it's a memorial piece, also not shying away from the violence and using these kind of innocent objects and destroying them, but not fully, so it's not immediately recognizable. Um, It's very, very uh, disturbing. It's clearly about violence and young life. And finally, I wanted to close out this section on her by talking about the car accident she had in 1979, which left her with, like, severe memory loss. Um, That was a major turning point within her art. Her recovery process, a part of that was making art that is, was more personal and more autobiographical um, because that just helped her heal. And the influence of her memory loss and her healing process physically and emotionally or mentally um, really impacted her work. And she would not have probably made the work that she did at the time that she did if she didn't go through this healing process. Um, you know, she created Free White in 21, shortly after her accident. Um, and there's one part within that where she's wrapping her head with like this gauze or paper. And it is like, like kind of like she's creating that white character and covering up her blackness, her black skin in order to be more accepted. But at the same time, um, there have been some discussions by disabled people that like the use of the gauze and wrapping her head when she had severe memory loss was kind of like her way of addressing it and dealing with it and healing and living her life with this memory loss. Um, I don't think that personally and in general, we talk about disability within art enough as we should. And so I did want to end this part talking about that because I think it's very important to talk about. Um, She created the painting Autobiography, which was actually a series of painting paintings. It was eight paintings that focused on her physical and mental recovery. And she used her own body as a focal point. Um, She would trace her own body and put it on a large canvas and then would create a collage with that. Um, Some of these items used in the collage were actually postcards from friends um, that she would cut up and then put back together in strips. Um, And these postcards were specifically used because she was using them and the stories of like her travels to spark her memory. And then she made her body out of the postcards and other items. Um, she's this really interesting artist that is still creating work that one is either very, very consistent with work she was creating early on, like 1976, she's creating similar work, or she's exploring different ways as a multimedia artist. You will always see really new and exciting and personal stuff from her that will continually make you think. Um, when I was in school, we studied her so much because there was so much to study and so much different stuff. And, um, I've been able to see some of her work in person and it was like, wow. (laughs) 
Okay, so that was six women artists. I said it would be brief, but this actually turned out to be a very long episode, which I really did not intend or expect. But once I kind of get into talking about it, you know, so take the challenge. Can you name five or more women artists? Um, I know that I focus mostly on like modern artists and contemporary artists, but I still think they're very important to talk about. Um, there were some artists that I swapped out because I was like, oh, this would be better for a longer episode. And, but just because I talked about them today does not mean there's going to be, there's not going to be a longer episode where I really dive into their work because I do have plans for that. But I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, next week is when I'm going to do the collaborative episode with my fiance on video games as art. So look forward to that. And I hope you're well. Next week, I will be going back to work starting on Friday. So yeah, um, I'll talk to you then. This has been For Art's Sake and Art History and Museum Podcast. And I've been your host, Rhea. Bye.